Yeah, as Doug just mentioned in prayer, we're uh, continuing our series, Restored, um, Recovering the Gifts of Christmas. We started out with wonder, enchantment. Last week we talked about peace. And this week we're talking about rest. Um, But to do that, we need to acknowledge some unfortunate, some bad news. And so I've compiled a, a list of examples of how it is that we are overworked as Americans. And so just a couple, just a couple of facts here to, to kind of set the stage. 70, 70% of American children now grow up in a home with two working parents. We're actually blessed in this church. A lot of, um, a lot of our families are able to do, um, you know, have a, one parent stay at the home. But that's actually not the case for the vast majority of kids. And I'm not saying that that's, you know, a bad thing. I mean, there's been times in our marriage where uh, Aaron and I have both been working and the kids have been— But this is a radical social shift. In 1960, so 60 years ago, that number was 20%. So in the last 60 years— we, we have gone from 20% of children to 70%. And again, not a big deal. It's, or maybe it is, it's hard to say. But the, at the very least, we have to acknowledge that the, the movement primarily of women into the workforce has dramatically changed uh, the nature and character of our communities. And, and part of that is, is that once women entered into the workforce, since 1950, American workers have produced about 450% more value for, like, dollars for their, um, the people they work for than they did 70 years ago. Um, so you're, as a worker, you are producing, and this is adjusted for inflation, uh, four and a half times the amount of money a, a worker in a corporation is producing that much more for uh, the corporation than they were in 1950. Why that matters is that it also it means that um, the the amount of money that we have to spend on you know the basics shelter uh, energy transportation food have been you may have noticed skyrocketing um, and so it's it's very much the case that even with sometimes two working parents we are now in a situation where kids are growing up where their generational wealth is not being produced because we can't afford houses. Uh, Aaron and I are super blessed to be in a parsonage. Um, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't be here because we know that we could not afford a home. Um, and, and she's got a master's and I got a PhD. I guess we chose the wrong subjects. Uh, this is interesting. Uh, women and men in the workforce, uh, women average, average, so that means that some women do much more, some less, but uh, 8.33 hours per week. Men, 9.09 hours per week. Uh, this is just on average. This is what uh, Americans do. Now, that, that may not seem like a lot to you, but if you compare it to the rest of the world, it's wildly, it's wildly, we're, America is the hardest working country in the world. Uh, 435 more hours per year than Germans, uh, 400 more than the, our British uh, cousins. This one killed me, 169 more than our friends in Japan. And I, I lived in Japan, I know how hard they work. What happened was the Japanese government was so upset about how many suicides were taking place uh, of their workers that they instituted required uh, paid vacation. So it's, it's, it's a part of the federal law in Japan that uh, workers get paid vacation and paid sick leave. That's not the case here in the United States. Uh, some, some of us don't have any, if you can believe that. 
Uh, this has led to the Great Resignation. You might have heard about this, uh, the Great Resignation. What, what happened first, before the pandemic, millennials and now Zoomers uh, have basically en masse kind of have decided that the system doesn't work. And so there's been this massive movement um, for younger potential workers to either not be employed or to be underemployed to stay with their parents as long as they can. Um, see, that's Justin was on that track <laughs> until just a few years ago. Good job. Your business major? Is that what you're doing? All right. Well done. Proud of you, man. Uh, failure to launch. Uh, the because there's this sense of like, well, what's the point, right? Uh, and then the pandemic, in, in fact, increased this because those who, who have made it, who were doing well, suddenly realized, boy, I sure hate going to the office. And now I don't have to. Uh, and so there's, there's this massive uh, shift. I just read an article about how in San Francisco right now, um, San Francisco, the businesses in downtown are just going out of business left and right because so few of the workers have come back uh, at, at the height on like, I think it's like a, a Friday is like, or Thursday is the day when most people are actually in the office. It's only 70% of the workers pre-pandemic. The rest of the week, it's 40% of the workers pre-pandemic. And so if you're an adult in the United States of America, you look something like this. But before we get to the good news, let's have some more bad news. Uh, did you know that the average American child quits sports at the age of 11? Why? Because children spend an average of 12 hours a week playing sports. Which is supposed to be a good thing. I, I think that sports can be really awesome. But you, you may have noticed, again, in the last uh, 40 to 50 years, 60 years, sports have become radically more intense than they were in the previous generations. Uh, most parents, what they want from sports is for their kids to get along and learn how to, like, have, you know, fun and lose well and win well and work together. That's kind of what most parents are about. But... It turns out that the social pressure of having success in sports has made it almost miserable for children. Uh, and it gets worse as they get into high school. There, we have reports of, of students spending 60 hours a week focused on their sports while they're in high school. Uh, moreover, next we've got the... Uh, which, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, children 8 to 12 spend 4 to 6 hours on a screen daily, which is amazing. At teenagers, apparently you guys spend 9 hours a day, uh, up to 9 hours a day looking at your device, uh, a device of some kind. Now, I bring that up because you might think that going on a device is, is you know, check out relaxing time, but that's not the case. Uh, the social media companies and the, the makers of the miniature games and whatnot, they hire people from psychological behavioral departments to find out how to come up with ways to addict you to um, your, your, whatever it is, your app that you're using. The idea being that they can simulate the dopamine hit process uh, from, from, what is that called? Slot machines? So it's basically when you're playing these games or you're on these apps, it, what's going on in your brain is the same thing that's happening to a pensioner in Las Vegas who's just, and what that does is it, it turns it into work because you're not, it's not relaxing anymore. You're compulsed. You're addicted. You have to keep going back. 
I see this uh, with my daughter Olivia. Yesterday, she played Roblox for something like 10 hours. Yeah. Now, if I had been a better father, I would have stopped that. But I was, again, watching the Vikings game. She, uh, she, when, when her eyes were glazed over and bloodshot, she stopped to, to read for like an hour to like reset her mind. So big win there for us. What else about kids? Homework. The average minor, notice who does homework outside of school. This is crazy. Spends between 15 and 40 hours a week on homework. The reason they say who does homework is because there's been a great resignation among students uh, to just stop doing homework. They just don't care anymore. They're tired of it. It's exhausting. Um, and there's so much of it that they just say, I'd rather give up than, than, than do it. I personally have a crusade against uh, Common Core standards. Common Core, I'm not, I'm, I'm, not only, I'm not just joking. It's funny in some ways, but it's honestly, it's horrible what has been done to our students, especially in math. Um, I, I tutored math for years. I'm not a slouch in math. And I see what they're asking fourth graders to do in Common Core. It is absolutely unconscionable. It is unconscionable. It is causing students to check out. Like students, it's so hard. It, it's, it's concepts that are just beyond what most fourth, fifth, sixth graders are capable of. And we're forcing them into it. So yeah, why wouldn't they just say, I'm over it. Give me the F. Who cares? I can't do it anyway. Sleep. I didn't look up the adult statistics on sleep, but uh, we do know that about 60% of middle schoolers and 73% of high schoolers uh, don't sleep enough. That's based on like seven to eight hours. Because they have all these other activities and whatnot, students are sleeping between four and six hours a night rather than more. And so chances are your kid looks like this. And the first thing your note sheets is that chances are you're exhausted. We lament the lack of church participation and attendance in American culture. Well, <laughs> it's a miracle that you're here. Like, it's unbelievable. What you guys do every week, what your kids do every week, what you believe they have to do every week. What you believe you have to do every week. You're exhausted. Well, what does the coming of Jesus have to do with this? What, what, what does Christmas have to do with our experience of a total lack of rest? Well, check this out. Um, we're going to start in Luke 2 with, with Simeon. Simeon was a, a man who was promised by God that he would see the coming of the Messiah. Simeon was, was told, before you die, the Messiah will, will come. Simeon sees Jesus in the temple courts and knows immediately that he's the Messiah. So Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God. He said, now, Master, Lord, let your servant go in peace according to your word. Now I can die. Uh, because my eyes have seen your salvation. You prepared this salvation in the presence of all peoples, Jew and Gentile. 
It's a light of revelation. It's going to show the Gentiles who you are. Uh, we Jewish people already know, but the Gentiles don't. Now that the Messiah is here, they're going to learn who you are. And a glory for your people Israel. Now the Jewish people are going to be vindicated, shown that you, God, have chosen us, and we will have glory in that. The interesting thing about this uh, proclamation from Simeon is it is open wildly to interpretation. It could be... It could be that what this means, and what, this is what most Jewish people, probably Simeon himself thought, is that when Jesus comes, he's going to become a great military leader, throw off the oppression of the Roman government, and lead the Jewish people into worldwide domination, where all peoples will look and praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, because he has shown such favor and blessed and increased and empowered them. But it might mean something different, too. You know the joke of the guy on the roof during the flood? There's a guy on a roof. It's like New Orleans, some place where floods happen. And it, the, the, the rain's coming down, the water is rising, and he's like, oh God, save me. And uh, a couple in the rowboat are rowing by, they're like, hey man, want a ride? We're going to get out of this flood. He's like, no need. I've asked God. He's going to take care of it. So the couple, it's next, a motorboat, a yacht comes by. Hey, buddy, would you like a ride? We're going to get to safety. He's like, no, no, it's good. You, you find some other folks. God is going to save me. Now the water's getting really high. It's his ankles. Now his butt are soaked. And it looks like his house is going to be carried away. The sky is dark. Suddenly a light shines down on him. The whirl of helicopter blades spinning. The helicopter comes down, lowers a rope and says, sir, get on this rope. We are going to take you to safety. He says, no, thanks. God's got me. After he drowns, he goes to heaven. And there he looks at God and says, why didn't you save me? And God says, I sent two boats and a helicopter. What else do you want? And the point of the joke is that, is that we have a sense of what salvation should look like, right? right? We have an idea of what God's rescue ought to be. The Jewish people did too. But the, our I, I idea of what rescue, of what salvation God is going to bring is not always what God actually brings. So look at this. So Jesus himself, right? So Simeon comes and says, the coming of the Lord is here. The Messiah is here. Now we know salvation is coming. The Gentiles and the Jews all will see God's salvation. What does that look like? Well, in Luke 4, Jesus proclaims it. Um, this is after he's been tempted in the desert uh, by the devil. And Jesus now goes back to Nazareth where he was raised. On the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue as he normally did, stood up to read. The assistant gave him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. He enrolled it, found the place where it was written. I think this is Isaiah 52. Um, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor. To proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. To liberate the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord. I want to stop for a second. Marilyn, go back. Uh, release to the prisoners. Interestingly, Luke uses the Greek word aphemi right here. Aphemi is also the word almost always Luke uses to, to talk about forgiveness. 
So uh, you're, you're released or forgiven of your sins. Similarly here, you're released or forgiven of prison. So I think there's maybe a double entendre there. It might, just not, it might not just be physical prisoners. It could also be those who are imprisoned in sin or something like that. But at, at the very least, it, it, it can mean both. Then Jesus goes on, um, he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the assistant, he sits down, every eye is on him. He began to explain to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard. Except that's not true. Have any poor people gotten rich? Have any prisoners been released? Have any blind people recovered their sight? Have anyone who's oppressed been liberated? No. It's not, not to say that's not going to happen, and, and I, think, I think it will, Jesus, it, but Jesus is inaugurating that. That hasn't happened yet. So how is it that this scripture is fulfilled? Well, what's actually fulfilled on the day that Jesus says that, what the coming of the Lord in, in Christ is, is it is a declaration of the year of the Lord's favor. A declaration of the year of the Lord's favor. What is that? It's not just a year in which God is happy, and God is like, this is a good year. Actually, this is a reference to the Old Testament practice of Jubilee. Um, and you may not know this, but in the Old Testament, the, the, the people of Israel were, were governed by laws in order to make uh, the community of faith um, good and nourishing and powerful. And, and the idea behind the laws is this is what we must obey if we're going to have a life together that is good. One of the things that happened when the people came into the land is uh, every family was given a plot, right? The idea was it wasn't just that the land was going to be for all of Israel, that each and every individual family that came from Egypt out of bondage was given a, a family inheritance, right? In the, in the ancient world, they were all, almost all farmers, and so every group, every family had its own like little plot of, of land. Now, the, the bad news is, is that when you have something like that, you may turn out to be a bad farmer. And this happened. This happened. Uh, there, there was an issue where, you know, you had your little fam family plot. This was enough to sustain you. But then you did a bad job. Maybe you were lazy. Maybe you just made the wrong investment. Maybe you were unlucky. But over time, people couldn't afford to stay on their plots. And so what they did is they would mortgage those plots to the, the, the people next to them who were more successful. And so the people who were more successful would then pay, would be, uh, pay their, their bills enough so they could eat, but then they would take and, and work the land well enough to make a profit off of it. And over time, people became slaves. Not literal slaves, but they were working just to eat. And this gift that God had given them was lost. And so God instituted in the law the Jubilee year. 
Every seven years, the seventh year was a year for the land to rest. They would leave the fields fallow. And they did this for seven groups of seven years. Forty-nine years they would, they would count out the, the, the time so that the land would be worked and then rested and then worked and rested. On the 50th year, they declared jubilee. And on the 50th year, everybody, everything was reset. All the chains broken, the horn blown, and everything that went wrong was made right again. So if your father or grandfather had failed and mortgaged the family plot, it was put back the way that it was. So it was your, your, your family again. You had another chance. If you had grown wealthy to the point where you and your family didn't have to work anymore— you're, you're reset, put back into a place where no, you gotta, you have to work again. All that extra land and all those people that you were ruling, they're, they're, they're free now. It was a big pause. And not only a pause, but, but on that year, not only was everything restored, but everyone was, was commanded to do nothing. To just chill for your, take a sabbatical. It was a Sabbath for the land and a Sabbath for the people. And so, Everything that went wrong, reset, and now is a time to rest. It's the next thing in your note sheets. Jesus brings jubilee. Jesus says, I am declaring now. This is the year of the Lord's favor, the jubilee. It's a reset of, re- of rest for all creation. Not just the human beings, but the land itself and the animals and the livestock. The, all of the universe is now in Christ, given a proclamation, you are free. It's reset for rest time. We know that we are horribly overworked. We know our kids are horribly overworked. Now, the U.S. government is not our master. We have to obey the laws uh, for the most part. Um, but that, that's not our true Lord. Not, neither is the culture outside of this church, the Orange County, you know, crush it culture. That's not who rules us. We are ruled by the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus says, reset and rest. And this might cost you. It might cost you to be not keeping up with the Joneses. It might mean that your kids don't get the college scholarship that you're banking on. It might mean that your colleagues might disrespect you a little bit because you don't do what they do. If, however, Jesus is Lord, it might be time to hit the reset button because things might be wildly out of whack. The reset... What, what is it? What is it in our lives that's draining us? And when I say draining, I, I mean, let's think about what Jesus says he's going to put an end to, right? He's like, prisoners are going free. What's imprisoning you? That might be a sin. It might be an addiction. But it might be circumstances. It might be a job. Jesus says, I'm recovering sight to the blind. Well, what's blinding you? It might be some spiritual issue where you're, you're, something in, in your heart is causing it. It might be an obstacle in your life that is causing you not to be able to see beyond into what God has for you. Jesus says, I'm here to liberate the oppressed. What's oppressing you? 
Again, it could be something spiritual, a sin, that, that, that's, but it might also be the rhythm of your life. It might be trapping you in a, a cycle of constant exhaustion. And if you, if you can identify these things, think then about what it's doing to you spiritually. How is this hampering your spiritual growth? Who is God trying to transform you into? And how is this stopping that? Now, it might be hard. Self-awareness is not something that, that human beings are super great at. You know what we are good at, though? is finding out what's wrong with other people. And so, even if you can't figure out what's messing up your life, you, I know what you're going to be good at. You can figure out what is draining, what is oppressing, what is imprisoning, what is your spouse, your kids, your friends, your colleagues— this will be much easier for you because these things annoy you about them. And you're going to look at them and you're like, that isn't, he, wow, he really needs to change that. <laughs> but when you do, think about it. Think about what could happen. You, you'd see not just what's imprisoning and oppressing and blinding and keeping them poor. But you'd also see how it's stopping them from being the person God's transforming them into. It's that last question. What, what is it that these people, that these are, are keeping them from living in Jesus' rest? The reason I bring this up is because you can't rest until you reset. The Jubilee theme is reset what's wrong, then you can rest. That's the next thing your note sheets. Jubilee demands a reset of what has gone wrong. You have to look at the rhythm of your life. You have to see what has gone bad, and you have to say, that's it. We're going to make a difference. We're going to stop, and we're going to make a change. If you do, notice how Jesus' pronouncement begins. Check the text out again. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been raised. On the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom, as he normally did. And stood up to read. What does this mean? It means that Jesus himself practiced Sabbath. He practiced rest. It was a habit. Every, uh, every Shabbat, every Sabbath, what did Jesus do? He went to synagogue and then he did all of the other things that people do on the Sabbath. Things that people do on the Sabbath, they're commanded to, to eat together, to play together, to rest, to not do any work, to relax and be a family. Jesus had a habit. The scientists uh, have lots of theories about how long it takes to make something a habit. Um, there's, there's various theories, but basically you can get someone to say anything from 18 days to 254 days. Okay, that's the scientist saying, we have no idea. We don't know. The scientists do know, however, that the, the key to developing a habit is repetition, reward, reminder. Right? Repetition, reward, reminder. So you, you do the thing that you're trying to create a habit out of. You get a reward for it. You reward yourself for doing it. And then you set a reminder. Oh, I have to do this again. 
And that's how you develop a habit. So if, if you're with me here and you're like, okay, we are going to be a counterculture. We are going to say that we're going to be different than the world around us, than the culture that we're a part of. We're going we're gonna to stand out. We're going to live the way that, that Jesus has called us to live. We're going to live in rest. So we're going to make a reset. Then after you've reset, figured out what's, what's causing the disruption in rhythms, then you institute Sabbath. You institute rest and you make a habit out of it. And the, the scripture is... I mean, there's no law about it, but really you should be looking to have at least a day of the week where you rest. But the thing is, this is going to be insanely difficult. Like, it's crazy. It's so crazy, the human beings. Here we are. We, we even have weekends. Again, a couple of months ago, I told you, weekends are only 100 years old. In the history of humanity, there were no weekends until about 100 years ago. In, in that hundred years, we've managed to find a way to take weekends, two days off, and still be exhausted. We're amazing. Let's just say that you want to do this. You want to form this habit. You want to reset and create a rhythm of rest. Well, the first, uh, here, here's, here's like a, this is a guideline. Okay, I've got some guidelines here. I'm not a, I'm not a, this is how it has to be. But, um, Marilyn, next slide, uh, rest restored. Yeah. First, you need to understand something about yourself, and that is, are you a homebody or a busybody? Okay, because some of us, because this is going to impact how you see rest, okay? Uh, I'm a homebody. I'm happy to sit on the couch all day long. Uh, maybe a break for, you know, the spa, something like that, or a massage. But other, I don't need to do a whole heck of a lot. That's a problem because part of rest is getting out and doing something physical. It's having an activity, okay? And so for someone like me, I got to be aware of the fact that this is holding me back. As I think I'm resting, what I'm really doing is zoning out and being blown away by how good Kirk Cousins was playing yesterday. That's what's really going on. However, you might be a busybody. And if you're a busybody, then rest for you means stop. You're exhausting me. I look at you and I'm tired just observing how you keep going. Like, I, 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 please, please, put the vacuum down. Just, Aaron, please, stop vacuuming. It's hopeless. There's never going to not be goldfish crumbles on the ground. It's never going to end. So recognize that because that's going to impact what rest looks for, like for you as you're developing this habit. Uh, the homebodies are going to have to get out. The busybodies are going to have to stop. And you're going to have to do it together because chances are that you've married your, your opposite. There are some, you know, power couples that are both busybodies or uh, some lazy couples that are both homebodies. But in general, we tend to opposites attract. Okay, once you've decided that, what's next? Uh, first, you need to create a restful environment. I have found, and this is, this is practical advice, fellas, I'm happy living on, in a bare room with a television, a PlayStation 5, a bare mattress, and ramen. Like, that's me thriving. Like, yes, this is perfect. I remember uh, when I had my first place, I set up a TV at the foot of um, my bed, and put my, at the time, PlayStation 2. And, uh, and so I was able to just lay in bed and play video games. <laughs> and the only time I had to get out was to eat or go to work. Okay, that's me. I am married to somebody who cannot relax. 
if the place is a disaster. And, and guys, if you're like me, help her out. Before you can rest, before she can rest, and for a lot of you guys, before you can rest, things have to be set. And that, that's a, that's going to be different for everyone, what that's going to look like, but the, you have to have the environment that rest can happen in. Now, again, guidelines, I'm just throwing this out. There's no, I don't, I don't know the part of the Bible that says you must vacuum in order to have a Sabbath. I don't think that's in there. Uh, next, rest is a team sport. This, this is critical because we, we tend to think that rest is something that we do, like I take a nap. That's rest. That is not the biblical vision for rest. Sabbath in the Bible is something that's done together. It's always done together. It's family. It's a family party. It's whatever. But it, it's, it's friends, extended family, whatever. But it's not something you do alone. And so when you're planning out to make a habit of rest, make sure that you're planning out to be with. It doesn't have to be your family, especially for those who are single, divorced. But you've got to find somebody to, to be resting with. And that goes for you who are married and have families. Be, be expansive in your, in your rest time. Don't, don't exclude people just because they don't share your DNA. Next, start with sleep. <laughs> I mean, this is self-explanatory. I'm just telling you, like, we have this massive sleep deficit. The, so much of what goes on in the— not me. I sleep like 10 to 12 hours a night, but the rest of you. The rest of you have this problem, and, and you, you've, got, you've got to fix it. it. And that means planning ahead for your Sabbath, saying, okay, I'm not going to have a late-night rager before for Sabbath, okay? It's saying, instead, I'm going to make a commitment to having good sleep. Guys, what that means for you, get your CPAP machine— and get serious about it, okay? I'm the one, I get it, I'm the fat one, all right? So I snore the most, but if you snore and you're having bad sleep, you need to fix that, not only for you, but for your wife. I'm not kidding. That sounds like a joke, but it's not. I can't even tell you how much happier uh, life is when you get good sleep. All right, next. Worship well. Part of Sabbath is worship. Did you notice what Jesus did? The first thing he does on the Sabbath, he goes to synagogue. Um, if your Sabbath is going to be Sundays, well then by golly, show up. I miss you when you don't. Oh no, Tom. I'm just watching online. I make sure every week I want uh, I Look, those of you who are doing that, I appreciate it. I think it's great. I'm glad. But man, are you really able to worship well by yourselves? Doesn't it help to be? Okay. After you worship well, what do you have to do? You have to eat well. Meal prep for the win. Uh, we are terrible at this. Basically what happens is right around 5 p.m. I'm like, oh, man. Well, I guess I'll defrost some, uh, some hamburger meat and make chili. It's good chili. I'm a pretty decent cook. But man, wouldn't it have been better if... We'd gone to Costco and gotten like some decent pieces of meat that we could then smoke or grill. And then, you know what I'm saying? Like put a little time and effort into it. It's worth it. And then most importantly, play well. This is going to look different for every family. Uh, some, of, some of us love 
golf. Some of us love hikes. Some of us love board games. But man, play well. Like, like plan it out. Do something. Something that, that all the kids like. Something that you can invite um, your, your single or, or younger or divorced friends to be a part of. Like, like do it right. But we're a grace church, so this is the most important thing. Do not turn rest into work. Uh, this is actually what happened in Jesus' day. Uh, the Pharisees turned the idea of Sabbath, which is supposed to liberate us and supposed to refresh us, supposed to put a pause in the week and bring us back into life. They turned that into a job. They made it so that regular people were miserable trying to do it. If Sabbath is, t- if you turn it into a law, if you turn it into the, going from a liberating and enriching and thriving habit into if you don't do this right, you failed. <laughs> ah, uh, it, it's, it's, it's an absolute, um, it's a travesty. And, and it destroys the good thing that God gives and turns it into something that oppresses when it's supposed to be liberating from oppression. Turns it into a prison when you're supposed to be being freed from prison. Makes you poor when you're supposed to have gospel for the poor. It, 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 ah! And so that's a balance, right? It's a balance we have to strike together where we say, we're going to be intentional. We're going to do this. We're going to be a counterculture. We're going to show the world that we're not going to be workaholics and we're also not going to be like lazy, do nothings. We're going to find this, this balance that God has ordained, um, this, this, this reset and this rest. We're going to make it a habit. We're going to do it, but we're not going to turn it into something that's an idol. That's the last thing you're going to achieve. Sabbath rest is a weekly habit of resetting to what is good. I can't even tell you, I think, what it would be like if we as a community really committed to this. I, I, think, I think we would actually have a gospel of sorts to the world around us, especially in Orange County, South Orange County. This is like the busiest place in the universe. And if we, if we really said, you know what, we're not going to put work first or sports first or homework first. or We're, we're, we're going to reset from those things. Instead, we're going to put first is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who says, my burden is light. Come to me, you who need rest. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, set in our hearts a desire for your jubilee. The jubilee that comes with the coming of Christ. The year of the Lord's favor fulfilled from the prophet Isaiah. A resetting of what has gone wrong that has caused us to be imprisoned and oppressed. and a habit of rest, of family, of what is good. God, in this season when we're being encouraged to say yes to everything, 
and to be overcommitted and completely running around. Instead, God, may we reset and rest. May we live the way you've called us to live. And in that, God, may we mirror, may we image you, Father, who created for six days and rested on the seventh. You, Father, who combine a generous and healthy and thriving work and creation and sustaining the universe and also rest and revivification. May this community mirror and look like God, like you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.